The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Well, like I said, I'm really excited to be in First Peter, uh, the Upside Down Kingdom. We're going to be in here for the next uh, five-ish months or so. Um, yeah, and it's going to be really great. So just uh, just forget about that and just enjoy each week as it as it rolls by. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I really think so. Um, we're calling it the Upside Down Kingdom because it really uh, what we're going to see in here is it really shows us a whole different way of thinking about life. What the Peter's big idea sort of. Uh, behind him writing this letter is uh, as he, he's writing it to the, a group of churches in what's called Asia Minor. Uh, Torrance read off those uh, fun little names of the places. Um, and he's writing to the, these churches in Asia, Asia Minor. This is Peter, is one of the original apostles of Jesus. Uh, you guys uh, may or may not be familiar with this story, but he was one of Jesus' 12 original apostles. He was one of the three of those apostles that were closest to Jesus. Uh, he was, interestingly enough, which we're going to see, he was the one who kind of kept like tripping all over himself uh, in his walk with Jesus and his way to follow him. And so it's really ki- cool to see him end up writing uh, this letter. And the, the people that he's writing to, the churches he's writing to, were undergoing some intense persecution. We don't know exactly what that was. Uh, the, the details of that are kind of sketchy to us, but at this period of time the, is, is really when we see the church has been spreading, Christianity has been spreading across the Roman Empire, and uh, it's really starting to filter out into all these different areas. And, and, and what's happening is at first, like, everybody's, like, kind of not paying any attention, and then, like, oh, isn't that an interesting thing? And all of a sudden, like, when you see, like, 10, 20, or more percent of the population of your city turn from worshiping the idols that they were worshiping before to worshiping this uh, man that they say was God, his name was Jesus, and he's the Jewish Messiah, like, and they start to live a different kind of life. Like, it it really throws the leaders off. And so you start to see in some of these localized areas, they, they start to kind of... Uh, persecute Christians, and maybe because they're uncomfortable with them, or maybe because they don't like the, the, their growing numbers and how it's changing society, or, or it could just be like sometimes leaders have, with Jews and other groups as well, uh, have chosen to, uh, the people who are not like us, it's easy to blame them for all the ills that are going on in our society. Um, I'm just going to leave that there and let you guys interpret that however you want to see fit uh, in current current events. But it's, it's easy for that to happen. That often happened with Christians. Like they became the scapegoat for things that were going wrong in a city. And so they say, hey, you don't like what's going on in the city? Like look at the Christians. And all of a sudden Christians would be persecuted in small ways. And then it became easier and easier than to be great big ways. And, and so Peter is writing to these churches that are going through this really difficult period of trial, of tribulation, of persecution. And it's really interesting how he starts off this book, if you think about that. So Peter's writing to people whose uh, dads may have been in prison. He's talking to people whose businesses may have been shut down by people who didn't like that they were Christians. And Peter writes, starts off this uh, this letter to these churches that are hurting. In the end of verse 2, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, you know, maybe you're not like me, but, you know, sometimes when, when, things are, when things are not going well for me and I tell somebody, they're like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, really, I'm having a really terrible day. And they're like, well, don't worry, it's going to get better. Or every cloud has a silver lining. You know what it makes me want to do? I'll just be honest with you. It makes me want to punch them right in the face. Like, just, 
come on, man, like, give me, like, just commiserate with me a little bit. I'm struggling here, but, but, but Peter starts off this book to these people that are suffering and hurting, people whose parents may have been in prison, people who may have lost their businesses or their homes, and he, he starts off to them saying, grace and peace be to you. And that can seem to me, at least, maybe not to you, but it can seem to me like it's like a little bit like inconsiderate, a little bit vacuous, a little bit like, hey, just you know, smile, and I hope everything's going to end up good for you. Every cloud has a silver lining. But but what he's really doing here is Peter's starting off this letter to hurting people, to scared people, to people by telling them, you need to know who you are. If you know your new identity as a believer in Christ, if you know that you have a new identity, if you're a Christian, and you know what that new identity is, then that new identity gives you the ability to have grace and peace be multiplied to you no matter what's going on around you. And that's sort of one of the miracles of Christianity when we look throughout history is that Christians, when things get hard around Christians, when Christians get persecuted, when Christians get pushed down, when Christians who were once maybe a majority in society become a minority in society and things get difficult for them when it wasn't difficult before like it is for us in our current culture, when things like that happen, instead of that pushing Christianity down and killing Christianity, what you actually see happen is you see Christianity all of a sudden flourish. You see grace and peace get multiplied to the Christians in that scenario. You know why? Because it pushes them to look no longer on the extinct life to all of a sudden realizing, look, this world, I'm cheating ahead, Dale, this world is not my own, this is not my home. There is a real, a realer reality than this, and that is where my identity lies. That's where my identity is found and not in this. And whenever you realize that, then all of a sudden you find a source of grace and peace is multiplied to you that cannot be oftentimes even when things are easy. See, here, I want to tell you guys something this morning, and I'm preaching to me and I'm preaching to you guys this morning, but it's easy to kind of think about that uh, our struggle with our, uh, with our finances, not making enough money to think that that's, that that's our real struggle. It's, it's easy to sometimes to fall into the trap of thinking that, that your struggle is because you haven't found the right spouse yet. And if you just found the right spouse, then you would find grace and peace. Then you'd find happiness. It, it, you're, it's easy to kind of fall into the trap of thinking that my real struggle is because my marriage isn't fulfilling. Randy, you don't know what kind of a jerk face I am married to. And I wouldn't say it out loud because they're sitting beside me, but I'm thinking it right now. My marriage is unfulfilling, and that's why I'm struggling. Struggling. That's why I can't find grace and peace. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that I'm struggling because I haven't achieved any of my dreams. Any of you guys, you college students, you're not there yet, honestly, but maybe you are. But some of you guys, anybody over like 25, definitely 30, you sort of realize, hey, all of these dreams that I've had for my life, it's just not going to quite pan out like I thought it was going to be. I'm not going to live in a pink castle but that I'm going to ride a, a unicorn to work, you know? Like, it, like that's just not going to be who I am. I'm not going to be Bill Gates. I had to realize that a few years ago. Like, I'm not that smart, but I, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to have a jet. I'm, that's not going to be my, my future. 
And whenever you get to a point where you realize, like, I'm not going to achieve all my dreams, it's sometimes it's easy to fall into the trap of saying, that's my real struggle because I haven't achieved all my dreams. It, it's easy to fall into the struggle of saying the reason that I'm struggling is because I have all these health issues, all these serious chronic things going on, and that's why I'm struggling but here's what Peter is saying to the churches in Asia Minor, and this morning he's saying it to you and to me. He's saying, here's the deal. A great deal of your struggle is because you don't know who you are. It doesn't mean life gets easier, but a great deal of your struggle means that is because you don't know who you really are. What happens is all those things I was just describing, it's easy for us to base our identity on any number of those things. And that's why we're always struggling because I don't know who I am if I'm not gonna achieve my dreams. I don't know if I, who I am if I'm not gonna actually get married by 30 years old. I don't know who I am if, I, if I'm not gonna be able to you know, have the extra money or live in that house that I wanna live in or drive that car. Peter is writing to scared and hurting people just like many of us in this room are. He's writing to scared and hurting people who are not only scared and hurting right now but are facing even tougher times ahead. Peter knows it's tough for you now. It's probably going to get tougher for you coming up. And here's my answer for you. Let me start off with a quick identity lesson about who you are as a Christian. This morning we're going to see that when you're a Christian, Peter says you have a new identity. He says your new identity is one who is chosen. Your new identity is one who is a stranger and your new identity is one who is scattered. Your new identity is one who is chosen, your new identity is one who is a stranger, and your new identity is one who is scattered. First up, your new identity is one who is chosen. Now, in many ways, Peter is an unlikely author for this letter because Peter is writing to people who, under, who are under fire for their faith. They're struggling and they're suffering because they are believers. That's why they're struggling. That's why they're hated and disliked and alienated by their neighbors and by the people who were once their friends and even their family. They've been standing strong so far, but they're suffering for it and they're struggling and they're hurting and they're scared. It's getting hard and there's a strong temptation to give up. And Peter's writing to them to stand strong in the middle of the fire, which is incredibly ironic if you know the story of Peter at all. Because Peter did not have a great track record of standing strong in adversity. Uh, Peter, whenever he was walking with Jesus, he was one of Jesus' disciples, that means a student of Jesus, and he would follow, he's one of the 12 that were closest to him, and then one of the three that were even closer, so he's around Jesus a lot, and we have this one instance where like Jesus says, basically he says he's going to end up dying for our sins, and Peter pipes up because he's like, hey, you're the leader, you can't die, and he rebukes Jesus in front of other, not only does he rebuke Jesus, I mean, it takes a little bit of guts or stupidity uh, to rebuke your boss or your teacher, but to rebuke your boss or teacher who happens to be the creator and sustainer of the whole entire universe, and to do so not only alone, like he didn't just pull Jesus aside, he did it in front of everybody else and said, hey, Jesus, that far be it from you to do that. And you know how Jesus responded to Peter? He basically called him Satan. 
He said, get behind me, Satan. Basically saying, shut up, you are talking for the devil right now. That's, that's like one thing on Peter's track record. The next thing on Peter's track record is that when Jesus was being arrested, or actually just before Jesus was being arrested, Peter swore to Jesus, other people may leave you, they may not follow you, but I will follow you to the death. And then when the chips are down and Peter, Jesus is in the garden, like Peter decides like the, the soldiers are coming to arrest Jesus, and P- Jesus is trying to go peacefully. Peter pulls out some kind of a sword or a knife and cuts off the ear of one of the people that are coming to Jesus. Jesus again basically has to rebuke him while he's being arrested in front of the people that are going to arrest him and take him to die. He Not only does he basically rebuke Peter in front of everybody, but he also has to pick up the dude's ear off the ground and heal the guy who is trying to arrest him so they can come and kill him. Then Peter, who swore undying, literally undying fealty to Jesus Christ, Everyone else may leave you, but I won't leave you. Yet the cock crows the third time, and it says that Jesus looked over at Peter, and Peter realized, I denied him not once, not twice, but three times when Jesus was in his most serious moment of need. And then... When Jesus is resurrected and he's spending some time with his disciples, it says Jesus is walking with Peter and he's talking with Peter basically about Peter's denial three times of him. And Peter is so, like, he's so peevish and childish that he turns around while Jesus is talking to him and sees that John is following them and he says, hey, what about him? And Jesus has to rebuke him and say, who cares about him? What, so what if I want him to live forever? I'm talking to you right now, Peter. This is Peter's record of standing strong in the face of adversity. And yet this is the man who was writing to these people in their suffering state about the need to stand strong. And it, instead of it feeling like it, it, is, it should be incredibly encouraging to you and to me. Because we see this sort of path for Peter. He starts off like headstrong and he's just tripping over himself and he's always messing up and he's, you know, when the, when the chips are like really down, he kind of falls all apart. He's not there for Jesus. He, he, he even like is, after Jesus is resurrected, he's complaining about John. And then later on we see that Paul says, I had to call out Peter because he was acting one way around the Jews and another way around the non-Jews. And I had to tell him the gospel is the same for everybody. Like Paul had to correct the apostle Peter for his own racist attitudes to other people. And this should be encouraging though because what we see is we see an arc of Peter's life. We see how he was one way before conversion, could not get out of his own way, always messing up, turning away from Jesus when things are darkest. And yet we see when the new birth happens in Peter's life, the day of Pentecost, all of a sudden he has a new boldness. We see him actually leading boldly the church in Jerusalem in the face of hostility. Then fast forward a few years and you have this kind of exchange that he has with Paul 
And then he again gets called out, but he seems to repent. And now at this stage of his life, as he's sitting in Rome, and he hears about these churches in Asia Minor who are struggling, he writes to them from a standpoint of a man who has learned and who has grown in his fealty and his devotion to Jesus, saying, hey, look, I have learned and I have grown in my identity and who I am, and I'm encouraging you from the same encouragement that I have been encouraged with. I'm encouraging the same truth that has built me up for you to stand strong in the face of adversity. His potential, it isn't based upon his performance, and it isn't based upon his pedigree. Peter's saying that the Christian's identity is based on something greater and stronger than those. But you see, we're all tempted to want to base our sense of identity on one of those three things, or all of those three things. We're tempted to place our sense of identity on our potential. That's the question, what could I do? Uh, this fits me so often. Like, I've thought about, like, I, I like to dream and think about the future. It drives Dale and Megan crazy. I love to dream about the future. And as a, as a kid, and as a, oh, like, I, I would just dream about what the future is going to look like. And I would think about all this potential that I had to fulfill all these things. And even when it came to ministry, like, man, I am just, I'll be honest, I'm pretty talented at this whole ministry thing, and if some church will just put me in this place of leadership, man, I'm going to take this thing and run with it, and I'm going to show everybody what kind of potential I have. It's easy to base our sense of identity on what our potential is until we pass a little bit of time and we see, like, things aren't going to roll out the way that I thought was going to roll out. Until we learn the hard lesson that maybe I'm not quite as talented or as good as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not going to achieve all the things that I thought I was going to achieve in my life. And all of a sudden, you look around and you don't know who you are anymore because you have wrapped up your sense of identity on your potential. What could I do? Uh, Some of us are tempted to wrap up our sense of identity on, on, on our performance. And that's the question, what have I done? Uh, you, guys are the, you guys are the go-getters. You guys are the, the list makers and the check mark makers. Like, you, you set a goal and you achieve your goal. Like, you, at the end of the day, when somebody asks you, how was your day, you're the ones who answer, it was productive. You know, like as if that answer is like, how was your day? It's like, you don't need to know how else my day was except to know I checked every box that I had to check today. And you look back on your life, it's easy to look back and say, hey, my identity is, is strong and good. I feel good about who I am because look at all what I've done. But you know what that is, the problem with that is? That, that snake bites both directions. And one day you wake up and it's not as good or you're circumstances change and all of a sudden you don't have as much performance to point to. And all of a sudden you realize, like, I don't know who I am anymore because I, when I ask myself the question, what have I done, I don't have a good answer for that. Some of us are tempted to base our sense of identity on our pedigree. That's where, where did I come from? What have I made of? Uh, you come from a different family than I come from. 
Uh, you come from a different kind of community that I come from. I live in a different house growing up than I did. But you, you have this sense, it's hard to, to get out of that. You say, like, look who I came from. Look what I have come from. Look at who my mom and dad is. Look at what my background is. Look at what my education is. Look at what my pedigree is. Look at who I am, my identity based upon those things. And that's, that can only take you so far until you look around one day and you say, hey, either that hasn't cut it, or you turn around and you meet people around you who, like, you might have been a big fish in a small pond, but all of a sudden you meet people who have a greater, higher pedigree than yours because a pedigree is comparative by nature, and you think, man, I don't measure up anymore, and you don't know who you are. We feel strong, we feel confident, and we have positive answers to any one of those things. What could I do? What have I done? What, what, have, what, ha, what have I made of? When we feel confident, we have good answers to those questions, then, then we feel like we're ready to embrace challenge. We're ready to like bring on difficulty. I'm ready. Hardships sort of feel like obstacles to be overcome rather than roadblocks. But then that changes when all of a sudden we don't have good answers to those questions. Peter, I will find identity on all three of those. Jesus, I will follow you. I will give my life for you. I'm the kind of person you can count on until that didn't pan out. That Jesus, when... I will never, ever turn away from you. I will be here. Whenever you look in your right hand, I'm going to be right there. But then the cock crows, and you look in Jesus' eyes. Well, I'm a Jew, and I've kept the law, and I've been good. I've, been, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And all of a sudden, you wake up in a dream, and God tells you to eat all these unclean animals, or he sends you to a, an, an unclean Gentile's house to preach the gospel to him, and the spirit falls upon them. And you're concerned about what the Jews, your Jewish friends are thinking about you, so you eat differently and act differently when you hang out with them until Paul calls you out and says, hey man, you're being a hypocrite. Peter knew what it, was, what it meant to lose your sense, of, your sense of identity in the middle of adversity. But over time, he had gained a stronger sense of identity that he knew was powerful enough to carry the believers in Asia Minor as well. See, Peter knew the source of grace and peace to be multiplied to them, and you hear it throughout all of this letter, and he jumps straight into it when he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That's a whole lot in there, but Peter starts out by saying, straight off the gate, he says, to those who are elect, exiles, to those who are elect, or that's the word chosen. Now, this would have been crazy coming from Peter because, again, Peter was a Jew, and that was, this is the wording that Jews used about themselves. They were the chosen or the elect people of God. God had chosen Abraham or Abram out of all the other people. He had chosen them to be his nation, to be his people out of all the other people, and Jews considered anyone who was not a Jew to be equal to a dog. 
over time, they had grown in this sort of misunderstanding of what their standing with Christ meant. But he, Peter, this Jewish man, is writing to these Gentiles in Asia Minor, and he's saying, you are elect or chosen by God. It was crazy for a Jew to talk about non-Jews about this way, and the re- but the reason he's doing so is because he sees that He's saying that for those of us who are believers, there exists a covenant relationship between us and God the Father, where you have been chosen by God. If you are a child of God this morning, it is not happenstance. It's not because you happen to be smart enough to make the right decision or to pray the right prayer. It's not because your mom and dad happened to be Christians or your grandmother was. It wasn't because you happened to grow up in church. If you were a Christian this morning, it's because God saw you before you had done anything and he chose to put his covenant love upon you. Look at this wording. Uh, To those who are elect exiles, and then you have, he, he names these different cities or regions, But if you jump down to verse 2, it starts off with according to the foreknowledge. That term, according to the foreknowledge of God, is pointing back to the phrase elect exiles. So read it this way. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That according to is causal language, or it means because of. So this is what it's saying. He's saying, if, if you are a Christian, then you are elect or chosen by God according to or because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's In this wording, foreknowledge of God the Father, it, it, without getting too much into it, it's pointing to covenantal language. It's, it's this idea that if you read the Old Testament, you see like Adam and Eve, and it says that, you know, Read between the lines, like Adam looked at Eve and she was nice to look at, and Eve looked at Adam and, well, he's decent enough. And it says that then they, they knew each other. And, and that knew each other means that they, they, had, they had bonded together in a covenant of marriage. There was a, a deep covenantal love that was now between them that made them man and wife. And God uses that same kind of language. When you hear the word know in the Old Testament, it's oftentimes pointing to this idea that God knows you, that he has placed his covenant love upon his people like a man places his covenantal love upon his wife. God doesn't just know you like he knows about you. He knows you in the, in the terms of that he has placed before you did anything good or bad, his covenantal love, his stamp upon you, and he said, she's mine. He's mine. I love them even though they have done nothing to deserve it or even deserve it. It's a foreknowledge. It points to a before kind of love. It's a forward love. It's a love that loves you before you existed, before you did anything good or bad. He looked at you throughout all of eternity and said, I know you are mine and you will be mine. He, according to, you are elect 
chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. If you are a Christian this morning, you are a Christian because, because the Father set his love upon you. And that should be incredibly encouraging to you. Because if you didn't become a Christian because you were smart enough or good enough, if the only reason you became a Christian was because God looked ahead in eternity and set his covenantal, everlasting, forever love upon you, then there is nothing that you can do to get out of that love. You are trapped in that love, but trapped in the best possible way. He has set his love upon you. That love is before you did anything good or bad. His love for for your life, if you were a believer, his love has been shaping your life since before you were born. And just like Jamin was talking about, before you were even conceived, his love has been shaping the direction of your life. Whenever you were born, his love was shaping the direction of your life. When you were living your life, maybe it was living far from God, maybe in deep rebellion against him, but yet his love was still shaping your life, pushing you and guiding you to the place where you would one day hear the gospel and see your sin and see his graciousness and love and would call out to him as your father and as your king and as your savior. His love has been shaping you for all eternity, throughout all of eternity. Hear this, before you were born, you were an object of his loving concern according to the foreknowledge of God. You have been an object of his loving concern. You are not forgotten. You are not overlooked. You're not just grouped in with a bunch of other people that happen to be Christians. God set his covenantal love upon you individually. His love has been shaping your life before you were even conceived, and his loving concern has been put upon you and about your life, all of your life. Your inclusion in his covenant family according to the foreknowledge of God. Do you see how that could change if you get that and understand that? Do you see how that could change the way that we react to the things around us that are going on around us, no matter how difficult it may be? Bring on the difficulty. I know that God has placed his loving concern upon me. He cares for me. He has loved me beforehand. He has set his love upon me, and his love has me, and there's nothing that can steal me out of his hand, and there's no way that I can escape from his hand, even if I wanted, according, elect, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. So not only were you known throughout all eternity but by the Father, but what this is saying is that he didn't just leave it a chance whether you would choose him or not. He poured out his Spirit upon you and gave you the ability to open your eyes. He sanctifies you, or that means to set you apart for himself by the Spirit of God for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Our response to faith in Christ for all that he has done for us in his sacrificial death, all of the Trinity has been involved in our salvation. That's your identity if you're a child of God. That's who you are. Your identity in life is defined now by your relationship to God, no longer by your potential or your performance or your pedigree. 
It's based upon the potential of the performance and the pedigree of the God who spoke creation into existence. It is unshakable. Your new identity is one who is chosen, and your new identity is one yet who is a stranger. This is the kind of interesting part of this phrase. He says, to those who are elect, exiles. Or another way you could say that is those who are chosen, strangers. Now, Peter doesn't just say that we're chosen. He says that we are elect exiles or, or, or chosen strangers. That, that, that word there, exile, means uh, exile, of course, or stranger or sojourner, someone who, who is dwelling in a land that's not their own but yet is passing through or traveling through. One day will return to their own homeland. And what this is telling us is that when you are chosen by God, according to the foreknowledge of God, by the work of the Trinity upon your heart and your life, his love set upon you, then to become chosen by God means that you become a stranger in this world system. Because now my defining, the defining truth about my identity is not what I have the potential to do or what I have done or my pedigree. It is now based upon God's work and his love that has been set upon me, then all of a sudden I now possess a different citizenship. Like I live in America, I live on this world, I am live in Horry County, but I am, this is not my home. This is not where I dwell in my soul of souls. I am now a citizen of God's kingdom. I'm a citizen of God's family. And that changes the way that I think about life. It changes about the way I think about everything involving a life in such a way that it now makes me a stranger in the way that people around me, the way that I used to think, the way that they now think or still think about sexuality and marriage and money and time and parenting, the way we think about worship and how we manage our time, what we give our time and we devote ourselves to. We now possess a different citizenship, and we now possess different values. My, the defining factor in my life is my relationship to God, his foreknowledge, the fact he chose me and made me his own, and now that changes the way that I think about things. And that's going to make me think about things and value things differently than the people around me, even though I used to be just like them. I'm now elect but I'm an exile. It's going to change the way that I think about just life in general. And that explains why it is that we as believers, if you're a believer, you can find no permanent rest here. And this is what the enemy of your soul constantly wants to get you to do, to try to forget that you are a sojourner, that you are chosen by God, that your citizenship lies somewhere else, and he wants you to be caught up in thinking about, like, how can I find permanent rest? How can I find permanent happiness here? It explains why we always find suffering here. We find suffering here, we find persecution, and we find that people around us misunderstand us here exactly because we are chosen by God. I am chosen in relation to God, but I'm now an exile or a stranger in relation to this world that I reside in. It's a sort of identity crisis where everything around me is pulling me to say, no, no, base your identity upon your potential, upon your pedigree, and upon your performance 
search for permanent rest here. You can find it here. Search for a life of no suffering here. It, it tells us why I'm still hurting even though I'm chosen and loved by God. I'm still hurting and I still suffer here because even though I'm elect and chosen, yet I'm an exile in regards to this world. We experience unrest and suffering as Christians simply because we have a new citizenship. And what that does is it causes us as exiles or sojourners, it causes us, if we can keep in mind that we are not just strangers here, but we are elect and chosen by God, and that's what has made us strangers and exiles and aliens here, then what that can cause us to do or lead us to do is to reject conformity to the world system. I live here, but I'm not of here. I'm an exile, but I'm chosen by God. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now this, again, is interesting that Peter is using this, these words in regards to people who are not Jews, who are Gentiles, because this word dispersion or diaspora is the term that was, that was used for when the Jews were scattered after the captivity in Babylon. So hundreds of years before this, Israel had been uh, divided into two kingdoms. They had been rebellious against God, and both kingdoms ended up being taken into captivity in Babylon. And then after that, they all didn't go back to their homeland. They ended up kind of be sc- ended up being scattered throughout the world, and the term was the diaspora of the Jews. And yet Peter uses that term here in relation to these believers who, who, as far as we know, weren't scattered. They probably were believers who have been residents of Asia Minor, became believers in Asia Minor, but yet he says that you guys are dispersed or the, you're elect exiles of the dispersion. And what that means is you're elect chosen by God, and that makes us exiles or strangers in this world. But in relation to our homeland, the world that is to come, when Jesus Christ returns, new heaven and new earth, and makes all things right again, it says in relation to our homeland, we're the ones who are scattered and spread abroad. And here's what that means. It means that as the scattered ones of the kingdom of God, elect, but yet exiles here, but then not only just all kept in one place, but scattered throughout the whole world, we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God wherever we've been scattered. We are representatives of that other kingdom in all the places that we've been scattered and we find ourselves. And what that tells us is like, while we long for homecoming, we long to no longer be exiles. We long to be the elect who are reunited with God, and we see all, everything around us made right again. We long for that, and we should long for that. Yet in the meantime, 
our journey, our dispersion, our scatteredness, our exile is not communities that we live in represented here. We're scattered in the different neighborhoods, in the different workplaces, in the different families that are represented here. We are scattered in order to be representatives or ambassadors of the kingdom that we belong to now, wherever God has placed us. You're called as an elect exile, not just to be waiting for God to call you home, but to be scattered in all the places that we'll scatter to today and throughout this week, and to let the Lord lead us as ambassadors into those places so that the people around us can look at our lives, the different values, the different citizenship there, the different way of living, and they can see a taste just like an ambassador would bring a taste of another country into a foreign land, they can see a taste of the kingdom that is to come. We are purposefully scattered in order to showcase God's kingdom, his upside-down kingdom that works seemingly upside-down to the world system around us. We're purposefully scattered in order to showcase that kingdom. And what that leads us to do is to be the scattered people, elect, yet exiles, scattered to represent the kingdom. And what that causes us to do is it presses us to accept responsibility for being the ambassadors of Christ, the ambassadors of God, the ambassadors of our Father to the people around us. And the hopes and the prayer that as we do, that those people around us who God throughout eternity has placed his covenantal love upon and said they are mine, that they will see your life, they will hear the gospel, and they'll respond, and they will now have a homecoming, and they will become an elect exile, and they will be scattered, and the Lord will do the same thing over again until one day he returns to make everything that's wrong right. And that's what gives us the strength, as we're going to see as we go forward, that's what gives us the strength as believers to endure difficulty and hardship. I can endure difficulty and hardship because I've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I can endure hardship because I know that's what happens whenever I become a citizen of God's kingdom in the middle of this world system. I'm in exile but then, through God's strength and power, we become scattered ambassadors of his goodness and his grace. And as we experience grace and peace multiplied to us, we get to then pour out that grace and peace to the people around us. Your new identity is one who is chosen, it's one who is a stranger, and it's one who is scattered. This morning, as we prepare our hearts for communion, if you're here this morning, and you're like, Randy, I, I've been that person. I've based my identity on potential performance and or pedigree. And it's consistently failed me. And I recognize this because I was looking for identity that I could mold and make independent of God Today can be the day that you can make the decision to become a child of God. And if you are here this morning and you even desire to do that, 
if you're even worried about your state, if you're even sitting there wondering if this could even be something that could be possible for you, then that's a sign that God's love is set upon you and he is calling you home as the father calls home his children. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.